Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Large spherical white objects are to be found everywhere in the skies over North America. Some grey cylindrical are also amongst them. How prescient was I in reading the book, The War of the Worlds? And you can get that on my Patreon page. Many thought that Sam Smith, fresh from the Brit Awards or whatever he was attending in an extraordinary balloon-like get-up was one of those shot down by mistake. Although I saw Joe Biden looking up at the moon the other day and I worried for its safety. The Americans are blowing everything out of the sky. Now, it may be a Super Bowl uh, hoax. Uh, They may be weather balloons. They may be pranksters. They may be drones. But I'm worried about that grey cylindrical one because according to CNN, it had no means of propulsion and the pilots that flew by it were unable to detect any means by which it could possibly be staying in the air. Now, this would be a strange time for extraterrestrial beings to buzz us, maybe even land amongst us, Although maybe they already have and are running things. And maybe that's why the world is going to hell in a handcart. But if they are of superior intellect as we, to us, as one must assume that they are, to have the technology to come through all these light years and reach here, surely they'll take one look at this dysfunctional, disintegrating, once beautiful earth of ours and hightail it out of here. Are extraterrestrials among us? Is there a UFO invasion? Or is it all a mere diversion? The ultimate, don't look up, but yes, look up, the ultimate look over there to take our minds off some of the actual man-made catastrophes that we are currently living through. Seymour Hersh, the world's greatest living journalist, in a deep dive on Substack because nobody in what passes for the mass media today would publish his revelations, has proven beyond any reasonable doubt to anyone with two brain cells to rub together that the United States and Norway, who'd have thunk it, quizzling Norway, behaving towards Germany in such a beastly way. Who would have thunk it? Seymour Hersh's, well, I was going to say groundbreaking, oceanically powerful piece on his substack has proven beyond any kind of argument that Joe Biden ordered the blowing up of a piece of vital energy infrastructure 
owned by his friendly NATO ally, Germany. It was an attack on Germany's infrastructure with awesome implications, not for now, but forever. Germany, even if Russia had a change of government, even if President Putin was replaced by, I don't know, Nick Clegg as president of the Russian Federation, the pipeline is gone forever, on which billions of euros had already been spent, and pumping cheap, reliable, and entirely safe Russian gas to Germany and all points of Europe. No more, thanks to a decision by two of his own NATO allies to blow up Germany's pipeline. There are five top news platforms in Germany, and not a single one of them has reported a single word or even the existence of Seymour Hersh's remarkable, earth-shaking reverberations on his substack piece on the Nord Stream 2. If that does not finally give the lie to the idea that Europe and North America are free countries with a free media, with a parliamentary democracy, with a democratic system, I really don't know what I'd have to say or demonstrate to you before you would conclude that it's all been a dream. The period, brief in historical terms, when we could so be described is now over. There is no universe in which no German media would report a story by the man that broke the Me Lai massacre story, the man that broke the Abu Ghraib torture story, the Pulitzer Prize winner, the man with more journalistic awards in his cabinet than any other living, breathing journalist, writing about Germany, writing about the German pipeline, and not a word, not a single jot or tittle of what Hirsch has written has appeared in the German media. Now that means one of two things. Either that Germany now has no dignity left at all, that there is not a single journalist or editor or publisher with a smattering of integrity who has decided that it would be to cheat his audience, to cheat his viewers, his readers, of the benefit of knowing the existence of this article, or the United States has forbidden Germany to do so. Such is the state of vassalage in which all of Europe, or most of it, is now held by the United States. I'm inclining towards the latter. And therefore, the only question is, when will the German people take a leaf out of the book of the 963,000 people in Paris this day demonstrated against the raising of the retirement age, yes, but also demonstrating for peace against NATO and for an end to France's involvement in the fanning of the flames of European war, which could become a nuclear war. When will Germany wake the revelations, of course, have been entirely ignored in Britain also. 
But then Britain is not so much a vassal of the United States as the tail of the American dog. And the tail is not placed in a part of the body that it's usually pleasant to be. To put it another way, Britain has become the rat that follows the elephant and feeds off its drops. We are the weakling running along behind the school bully, hoping that we can pick up some of the coins that fall from the pockets of those that the bully assails. It is a truly dreadful state of affairs. On the social media scene, things are increasingly not much better. I don't want to dwell on my own battles with Twitter, but it has now become actually a thing of the absurd. Videos that I put out on YouTube, which get scores, sometimes hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube, get hundreds of views on Twitter. I have almost 450,000 followers on Twitter, but almost none of them ever see any of the things that I say or put out on Twitter. And if that's the state of affairs as revealed in the congressional hearings on Twitter this week, where the former executives of Twitter well, literally, well, not literally, although they might yet literally be nailed to the wall by congressional criticism and analysis of the role that they played in breaking the American Constitution itself, in forming a conspiracy, a concert party, to deny truthful information to the great American public. If that does not lead to jail terms, for the people involved, including the officers of the FBI and the CIA who were entirely implicated in it. I really don't know what you'd have to do to get sent to jail in the United States. I don't know, probably be black or something. The big tech has formed an ironclad alliance with big government and the securocratic apparatus around big government, and all of them now constitute a clear and present danger to anything that remains of democracy in our continent and in the subcontinent of North America. And that's important because, as we all know, for most people, that's the world. Although only 13% of the people of the world live in what is laughingly called the West, because it includes people like Japan, where the old are about to be told to ritually disembowel to solve the aging population problem. It includes places like Australia and New Zealand, which geographically cannot conceivably be placed in the West, but they still believe that they are. That 13% has ruled the world for centuries. And it's the fact that that is coming to a shuddering end, as powerful as even the earthquake that has now killed more than 30,000 people in Turkey and Syria. That earthquake, political, geopolitical earthquake, which is currently underway, which is the cause of the tremendous turbulence in the world, because nobody in Africa 
Nobody in Latin America, nobody in Asia, not China, not Russia, not India, not Brazil, not Iran, nobody in fact in the entire Arab world is now following American orders. In fact, they are outright defying them. Russia cut its oil output by 500,000 barrels a day this week. The West begged OPEC to increase production in order to mitigate the necessary price rise that that will cause. And OPEC, within 60 minutes of that appeal, told them to go and get stuff that there will be no increase in output by any OPEC country. The fact that countries as disparate as India, as Saudi Arabia, as Argentina, as Qatar, are now queuing to join the BRICS. The fact that half the countries in the world, half the population of the world, is now in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And more than half of the wealth of the world is now in the SCO. Are all indicators of this tectonic shift that has occurred in world politics. Rapidly, massively advanced by the conflict in the Ukraine. I said from the beginning, you may be tired hearing it, but let me say it one more time. In our response to what happened almost exactly a year ago in Ukraine, in the policy we followed from mounting a coup to overthrow the elected government in Kiev in 2014, in our attempt as long ago as 2008, to turn Ukraine into an armed camp against Russia, we lifted a huge stone only to drop it on our own feet. We have accelerated, perhaps by a decade or two decades, this gigantic shift that's going on in the world. Let me turn, if I can, to the earthquake. Of course, and we must assume, that it is a natural earthquake that struck three of America's enemies in quick succession, Iran, Turkey, and Syria, the devastation is almost impossible to believe. More than 30,000 people have lost their lives. More than a million have been wounded and maimed. And millions are now homeless in the cold winter, for it is a cold winter in the north of Syria and in the south of Turkey. Some countries have distinguished themselves by their response to that earthquake. Others merely compounded their own disgrace. The British people, I must say, I cannot speak for any other. I'm very proud of them. Almost 50 million pounds from the public, from the people of the United Kingdom, was raised for the earthquake victims in 36 hours. This is a truly phenomenal, generous response in a country itself sunk in the economic doldrums and shivering through an energy-poor winter. Other countries, like Italy, have broken the sanctions on Syria to fly military planes with aid 
for the people of Syria. But the big finance companies who have been turning back donations sent to the Red Crescent in Syria on the grounds that Syria is under American sanctions should hang their head in shame. Those companies that are saying they cannot supply medicine and medical equipment to Syria because Syria is under economic sanctions when people are still lying, some of them alive, lying. Now for a week, amongst the rubble, under the rubble, in the great city of Aleppo, for example, a woman and her daughter were rescued alive today. Five, six days of lying under the rubble. Countries like Cuba, like Iran, like Russia, have rushed aid into Syria. But most of the countries, the governments of the West, have completely refused to lift these sanctions on the people of Syria. I made a video about it last week. You may have seen it. If not, you should look it up. Syria's only crime was to stand up to a Western-financed and inspired ISIS and Al-Qaeda attempt to remove the secular from the term secular Arab Republic. Its only crime was with its allies, Russia and Iran, to defeat ISIS and Al-Qaeda and their alphabet soup of local affiliates in the civil war which has now raged well over a decade in Syria. We launched our own blizzard of cruise missiles and other attacks on Syria when the jihadists failed to reach and conquer Damascus. Well, not us in Britain, because the British Parliament, in which I sat at the time, in a debate in which I spoke at the time, defeated David Cameron's government in its attempt to join the bombing of Syria, despite the fact that both front benches, Conservative and Labour, were gung-ho for the bombing. The British Parliament said no, and the engines of the jets had to be stilled and the bombs unloaded. No such thing could possibly happen today. Not even a decade later, the British Parliament is entirely unanimous. I don't use that as a figure of speech. I'm using it literally. Not a single member of the British Parliament can dare or will dare, I should properly say, raise their voice against this mad cap dash for what very well might become World War III. We've got guests tonight who can explain that just as powerfully, if not more so, than I have just tried to do. So stay tuned, because this is the mother of all talk shows. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We would love to hear from you. We've got a poll running. The UFOs over North America are A, Chinese, B, aliens, C, we'll never know. And you can vote on my Twitter handle, you can vote on the YouTube, you can vote on my Telegram, t.me forward slash George Galloway. You can vote, as thousands already have on the YouTube community uh, poll. Now, one of our most uh, popular guests in recent times is Colonel Senator Richard Black, a former head of the Criminal Law Division at the Pentagon. He's a senator for Virginia, but given the Nord Stream issue, we felt it was important to take his learned view on what appears to have happened, and I'm glad to say he was able to accept. Colonel Richard Black, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. On the face of it, Colonel, Senator, uh, this is a grave international crime which is alleged against the American government and the Norwegian government. Uh, will any consequences likely follow? Well, I doubt that there will be consequences, but uh, uh, there is no doubt that it is it is a grave criminal act. Uh, here you had uh, $22 billion that were plowed into building the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, it was a partnership that involved uh, principally, the, the two big principles were Germany and Russia. And it was designed to uh, facilitate and enhance the prosperity in both countries. Uh, the gas would come from Russia, it would flow into Germany. Uh, now, the natural gas is the key ingredient that forms the foundational chemicals that are then used to produce other chemicals down the line, various successions. Um, Germany's, Germany's economy is very reliant on a huge, powerful chemical industry. It goes back hundreds of years. The Germans have been some of the greatest uh, chemists uh, in history. And uh, the without without the inexpensive natural gas, you don't have the the foundational element. So this was something that was going to benefit the Russian people and the German people, uh, and it was completed. The entire project was completed over quite a number of years, twenty billion dollars, and the United States had several interests. One is the U.S. was concerned that somehow uh, Russia would have a lot more bargaining power if 
they supplied the oil or rather the gas uh, to Europe. Uh, so that that was a big issue. Another issue is the fact that the United States very recently, like within the last 15 years, has created a very major natural gas industry. Now, we always had natural gas, but we created an industry that liquefied the natural gas so that it could be shipped overseas. And that meant that uh, Europe was a huge market. Now, the problem is that the American liquefied natural gas is multiple times as expensive as the the piped in natural gas from from Russia. So there's no other way that we could uh, we could compete economically in a capitalistic sense. Um, so the only way that we could do it would be to cut off the supply of gas coming in from Russia. And that that is what we did. Now, uh, there was an immense a series of explosions under seas that uh, that destroyed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which actually is two pipelines uh, in parallel, and also the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. And uh, uh, the explosives were laid uh, by, uh, by divers in the course of, uh, we, we were putting on a, a uh, military operation called uh, Ball Tops. And uh, under cover of that operation, we laid the explosives in place. And uh, then under the insistence of the White House, uh, we wanted to make sure that we could set them off at any time so that we could make sure that the explosions took place in a way that uh, would not distract from other things happening or perhaps would be overlooked because other things would be happening. And uh, uh, so Seymour Hirsch, uh, well, first of all, when, when the explosions took place, uh, there was an intercept, uh, received uh, a, uh, a text message from Liz Truss, who at the time was the was the prime minister, and uh, she sent a very short, cryptic message to Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and she said, it's done. Now, she said that just moments after the explosions took place. So we knew, obviously, she knew that the mission was complete. She was informing him. Uh, there was a lot of speculation. Did did the did the United Kingdom actually carry out the mission? But uh, uh, and now Seymour Hirsch has laid out it with enormous precision how the how the uh, action was carried. Uh, American divers are trained, and uh, and that those uh, those American divers um, uh, carried out the operation, putting the putting the explosives in place. Then later, uh, several months afterwards, a Norwegian plane flew over, dropped into the water. This kind of a sauna boy that was able to uh, to push 
a, a certain frequency signal that would sort of overcome all of the other uh, possible signals. And the, the Norwegians actually set off the detonation, uh, or at least they put in place the, the mechanism to do it. The U.S. Uh, ordered the detonation, and we we destroyed the uh, the, uh, the pipelines. There was a great debate within uh, the the insiders who were planning this operation. There was considerable operation because or opposition because it is an act of war to destroy a major. Uh, a major facet of, of capital infrastructure of a foreign nation. So it was an act of war against Russia, but it was also an act of war against Germany. And uh, now Norway benefited greatly because Norway is a tremendous producer of, of oil and natural gas. So all of a sudden they were able by virtue of, of helping to blow up the pipelines, they were able to triple uh, the, the price that they got for the natural gas that they sent to Europe. So they had a tremendous market for it at a tremendously high price. Uh, so it, the, the whole operation smacks of the types of things that the mafia used to do in New York City when they took over and uh, they would go around to business people and they'd say, look, uh, you can buy our insurance or you can not buy it. But if you don't burn it, your house is going to burn down. Your business is going to burn down. And they burned them down and they, they assassinated the, the business owners. We're really not any more moral or lawful or decent than than the, the mafia. Uh, Al Capone, he operated the same way that uh, the foreign policy establishment operates today. Now, you've established uh, stupendously well the answer to the ancient question, qui bono, who benefited from the crime? Uh, the United States and Norway have financially uh, reaped an enormous bonanza uh, dividend as a result of this and will presumably do so uh, forevermore as long as we are using gas. But if you are prosecuting this, Senator, uh, what other arguments would you bring to bear? What other evidence uh, is there to bring to bear uh, to place the responsibility of it? where most people think it really ought to be. You know, you, you mentioned the, the, the uh, long time, long standing maxim, qui bono, uh, C-U-I-B-O-N-O. Uh, and in, in essence, qui bono means who benefits from the crime. And the, the United States, you know, through the very compliant media, put out this, this uh, silly notion. They said, well, Russia, Russia destroyed their own pipeline that they've worked on for over a decade, and they plowed enormous financial resources into, and for which they 
they gained enormous benefit, they destroyed it. Well, a child, a school child can tell you that's not true. I mean, that's so foolish that just uh, on the face of it, uh, unless you are a, a dedicated follower of, uh, of the government edicts, uh, then there's no way that any reasonable objective person will believe that. So, you know, I, I'm i a career prosecutor. I, I was the chief of the criminal law division and oversaw the prosecution of thousands of cases. And it, it does. It, it You don't talk about qui bono, but uh, you you just instinctively look. Who, who benefits, okay? Is it the... Is it the the husband of the dead wife who recently took out uh, insurance policies on her life? Uh, you know this kind of thing. Who benefits? And uh, you you can name several countries: the United States benefits, the UK, Norway, Poland. And then the next question. So so basically, you have motive. And then you want to look at uh, means and opportunity. Well, here's where you begin to narrow it down because the United States dominates NATO. We make the decisions for NATO. The Supreme Allied Commander Europe has always been a four-star American general. And uh, we, you know, we provide the, the bulk of the funding and so forth. So nothing is going to happen uh, by, within any of these NATO countries without the explicit okay of the United States. The U.S. is going to give the green light or it's not going to happen. So that takes out of the equation uh, countries like Poland, even a country like uh, Norway, because Norway is not going to to instigate something. This they uh, they are going to take their orders from the U.S. and not even with the U.K. Uh, uh, you you can get to a country like Ukraine. Ukraine doesn't have the means to carry this out, um, and and at the same time, if they do something that crosses the U.S., uh, we you know we can cut off their access to arms and supplies, and they die. I mean, they're essentially a welfare state, totally financed and supported by the United States and the West. Um, let me tell you, in terms of the proof, you mentioned the proof. Now, it's important to know who Seymour Hirsch is. Uh, Seymour Hirsch is the gold standard in investigative journalism. Uh, I have studied his works for many years now. I can't tell you whether he is personally a liberal or a conservative. Um, he, he doesn't have an ax to grind, uh, but he loves good journalism. And uh, he, has, he has some very strict policies. And one of them is that he will not um, report on something unless he personally conducts a face-to-face -face interview 
and takes the information from the top governmental officials that provide it to him. He's got an incredible knack for linking up with people in the White House, in the, in the Pentagon, State Department, all sorts of organizations, uh, domestic and, and overseas. Um, he does not speculate. Now, when whenever the governments are trying to smear him, they always say, well, he he's a conspiracy theorist. He doesn't theorize anything. He reports and he reports with with exquisite accuracy what top government inside officials tell him and what he can confirm from talking to others, because not everyone is going to have a completely accurate story. But you talk to three, you talk to four or five people, and where their information intersects, you know, okay, that's a data point that's absolutely certain. And uh, if you read, as Tucker Carlson did, Tucker Carlson gave quite a good discussion of this, and as he said, if you look and you see the incredible detail and the insight into every conversation and uh, every, every particular of the entire conspiracy, the plot to carry out the greatest uh, terrorist act since 9-11, then Tucker Carlson, who never says this, he said, you cannot read this report without knowing that it's true. And and I agree with that. Uh, I've read many of his reports, and it's not unusual that he would have to, he usually doesn't come up with the conclusions, but he, he will lay out the information, and you arrive at conclusions. Um, but in this case, there, there really is nothing, no room for supposition. It's all laid out in great detail. And of course, Colonel, the, the repeated statements by Victoria Newland and by Joe Biden themselves, long before the explosion, uh, that the pipeline would not be permitted uh, to go on to uh, be operated. So what we have is, a grave international crime, a crime of international terrorism. The world's greatest living journalist has compiled the case. Uh, and yet we still have officials of your government in the CIA and in the White House press room denying it, uh, though they have ceased to imply or even explicitly state that it was uh, someone else that did it, that it was Russia that did it. They show no interest in finding out who actually did it, but they deny that they did it. And yet, right at the beginning of this interview, you said, and many people's hearts will have sunk, that there will be no consequences. What that means then is that the rule of law uh, that they're always talking about the rules-based order that they're always talking about simply no longer exist. Well, I, I think to, to a great degree that is true. 
<clears throat> we're we're talking about pol power politics. The whole the whole war in Ukraine has nothing to do with right or wrong. Uh, it has to do with geopolitical advantage, and the State Department and Pentagon, the White House have made a decision. They basically adopted the decision of President Barack Obama when he was in power that we needed to damage Russia, perhaps to perhaps to take it over, perhaps to dismantle it. But in any event, we needed to make things sufficiently impossible for Russia that we compelled them to join the very major war that was already underway. Now, just, just to recap a little, the United States in 2014 coupled up with uh, the United Kingdom, and we conducted a coup to overthrow the government of Kiev, the duly elected, popularly elected government of, uh, of uh, uh, Yushchenko, uh, uh, I can't pronounce his name, uh, but anyway, the uh, the the president at the time he was overthrown. He fled in a very violent uh, uh, coup uh, that murdered a great number of people. Some of them police officers. Some of them just uh, people who who opposed the the overthrow of the government. And. Uh, uh, the CIA was involved in it. Uh, Victoria Newland, who was uh, with the U.S. State Department at a high level, she was on the ground. She was conducting discussions uh, about who should be the ministers of the of the new government. And this, she was doing this even before um, the the uh, outgoing president had been thrown out of office. And uh, so we we put in place a revolutionary junta. The new the revolutionary junta promptly amended the Russian or the the Ukrainian constitution. That constitution had previously had that Ukrainian was the first language of the country, Russian was the second language. The reason for that is that a huge number, huge portion of Ukraine's citizens are Russians. They, they follow the history, the culture, all of these things of Russia, and they speak Russian. And uh, so when this happened, you can imagine if somebody told all of your English listeners, okay, uh, you know, next week, uh, if you want to transact business, if you want to get a driver's license, if you want to teach school, uh, you have to uh, you have to begin speaking German. And otherwise, otherwise, we're not going to help you, and we're we're going to fire your teachers. And so, well, people would rebel in a minute. And this is what happened. The people in the Donbass and in Crimea, they all almost all spoke. Uh, Russian as their their native language. Many of them didn't speak Ukrainian at all, and so they said, "Okay, we're going to declare independence." They did, and immediately the United States was flooding in uh, deadly weapons, 
uh, with which to build up a huge Ukrainian army so that they could launch war against the these Russian areas of Ukraine. And uh, and they did so, and that war raged. This was not a real small war. There were 14,000 people killed, most of them civilians, because there weren't a lot of military targets in the Donbass. 14,000 people were killed over a seven-year period. And Russia had, they had avoid, avoided being drawn into the war. They didn't want a war. Their army was a home guard. Now they had they had very advanced nuclear weapons and they had some very good weapon systems. But the army was, it was not an expeditionary force like that of, of, of uh, the UK or of the United States. It's, you know, our forces go off all over the place and they make wars in all different countries. Uh, Russia didn't do that. Russia wasn't going out attacking other countries. So it went for seven years standing on the sidelines before it finally was clear that uh, Ukraine was about to launch a massive attack on the Russian citizens, or not citizens, they were citizens of Ukraine, but they were Russian people right on the border of Russia, and they were about to be ta attacked uh, by the Ukrainians. And, uh, and that's the point at which uh, President Putin ordered his outnumbered, unprepared forces to cross the border and basically to draw the the uh, Ukrainian army to the north where they would have to defend the capital so that, uh, you know, he managed to rescue the people of the Donbass from an imminent attack. And of course, we we portrayed it. We said, look at this. They, you know, they, they Russia has crossed a sovereign national border as though they were the first country in all human history to ever do this. Uh, meanwhile, we're ignoring the fact that we're, hey, can you think of a, a few places we did it? How about how about Iraq? How about Syria? How about uh, how about Serbia? Colonel, Libya. Uh, Colonel, Colonel, yeah. Colonel, there's there's only forty countries in the entire world that Great Britain has not invaded, and I'm including <laughs> yours in that tabulation. It's as always. Uh, a real lesson in uh, geopolitics and law to hear you speak. Thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, if Colonel Richard Senator Black is one of the most popular of the mother of all talk shows guests, my next guest is the most popular with the single record clip of 225,000 views an audience of millions over the many times that he has appeared on the show. It's always important to hear from him because he is in Ukraine. He's a Chilean filmmaker and analyst, and he's there. He's clear, and he's present. I hope, Gonzalo Lira. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Gonzalo, I saw a very a powerful piece to, uh, from you today about the German people. Just reprise, summarize what you 
What was your message to the German people in the video I saw from you today? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. And it's, it's a delight. Thank you. Um, yeah, the piece I, I posted today is basically to the German people because I have many friends in Germany that I am, of course, in touch with. And none of them have heard of Cy Hirsch's piece that you were discussing with Colonel Black pre previously. And I was basically emphasizing the fact that they should be uh, looking at this piece. I linked to the, to the full piece that uh, Seymour Hirsch uh, wrote. And I told the German people that basically their, their press and their government is lying to them by omission. Because I speak with very educated, uh, very well-placed individuals in Germany, and none of them have any idea of the investigation that Cy Hirsch did that proves conclusively that it was the Americans in cahoots with the British and the Norwegians who destroyed a vital infrastructure and is making the German people in certain, so far as energy costs, heating costs, food costs, inflation generally, because of this, not to mention the fact that due to the loss of the Nord Stream pipelines, German industry is cratering. I mean, we are seeing, quote unquote, deindustrialization of Germany, which really means the bankruptcy of uh, small and medium and even large firms in Germany. Uh, the largest firms are actually starting to relocate to the United States. You know, so this is a disaster for the German economy and the German people, and they should be aware, the German people should be aware that it's their own allies that have done this to them. The Americans and the Norwegians, all of them part of NATO, which is supposed to be this defensive alliance, but rather this, the members of the own, their own alliance have declared war on them. Uh, it, it's really despicable, and it's despicable that the German government dismisses uh, Mr. Hirsch's reporting as, as just, oh, one uh, German official who mentioned it claimed that it was just a hypothetical and it was not based on fact, which is ridiculous. Everybody knows that Cy Hirsch well, is no, an incredibly no, diligent yeah, reporter. Yeah, no, Gonzalo, no article I have ever read has more facts in it than Seymour Hirsch's deep dive into the, to the Nord Stream. Uh, the fact that it's despicable will be common currency uh, around yeah. certainly this audience, but I think uh, more widely. What? But I wanted to actually bring up something more, else, if I may. Yeah. I, no, the, what I wanted to bring up, uh, you had a very good discussion with Colonel Black, so I think that the issue of Nord Stream is, is pretty much settled and we're all in agreement on it. The thing that I wanted to highlight, if, if I may, is that... Um, as of last week, there has been footage that has been emerging from the front lines here in uh, Ukraine where uh, drones are dropping canisters of what seems to be chemical weapons. Uh, there has been um, various footage of what appear to be Russian soldiers uh, dying from a chemical attack. And there has been footage of, uh, of a refrigerator with dozens of canisters of what appear to be chemical weapons of some sort or another. It's not quite clear what chemicals they are. And the drones that are going to be used to drop them on them. And the people who, who filmed this video were very clearly Zelensky regime forces, and they were bragging about it. They, they, were, they allowed themselves to be very readily identified in these videos. 
And the thing that we have to ask ourselves are, is, are we escalating into a horrifying direction? Because nobody in the American mainstream is talking about these videos of these chemical attacks that have been going on on the front line. I have seen at least two separate incidents and, and the manner in which they were filmed and the fact also of that video with that refrigerator full of these canisters of chemical weapons uh, makes it pretty clear that it is something incredibly noxious, lethal. This is chemical warfare. And the fact that nobody in the West is talking about this uh, and certainly not con uh, condemning it as they should, well, this will lead to escalation. Because, I mean, suppose that the Russians had used chemical weapons on the battlefield. There would be an uproar with these just two videos of chemical weapons and that additional video of, uh, of a refrigerator full of uh, chemical weapon canisters and drones to drop them. You know, there would be outrage in the United States, in the Western media. There'd be calls for a Security Council meeting. All kinds of brouhaha would be raised if the Russians were doing it. But since the Zelensky regime is doing it, and I'm very careful to identify it as the Zelensky regime, because I, I don't think that uh, decent Ukrainian people would ever condone such a thing. The Zelensky regime, since nobody is saying anything about this, now they have carte blanche to expand this use of chemical weapons. And one has to ask, what would the Russian response be to their soldiers being killed by chemical weapons? This is incredibly serious, and there isn't much enough attention being paid to this. As to what chemicals are being used, I certainly am not one to, who would know. But whatever it is, we have seen about at least two separate incidents that I personally have seen. Clearly, it's something lethal. What? And the fact that there were so many canisters and so many drones in that video footage of the Zelensky regime forces bragging about how they were going to use it, this leads me to conclude that there's going to be an escalation in chemical warfare on the front. And the repercussions of this could be catastrophic. I mean, this is, we're really going into, we're marching blind into unknown territory. This is a disaster. Yeah, we're going into First World War territory, not just in uh, casualty levels, but also now in the, in the weapons that are being used, uh, which uh, I've seen referred to as uh, chlorine weapons, the very weapons that the West attacked Syria for allegedly using in Douma, uh, something which has been contested now uh, for the best part of a decade. So Syria was attacked by all of the NATO countries except Britain because our parliament stopped it uh, for allegedly using uh, exactly the same chemical weapon in Douma. Iraq, on the other hand, was literally annihilated on the suspicion that it had chemical weapons, biological weapons. We now discover that up to 46 biological weapons labs owned by, I'm not making this up, Hunter Biden and the Pentagon were actually seeded, laced uh, throughout Ukraine. There's chemical weapons, there's biological weapons. This is a descent into World War I, which could become World War III, isn't it? Yes, exactly right. 
because uh, the Russians are not going to take this lying down. Uh, uh, use of chemical weapons is universally condemned for reasons. It's inhumane, it's despicable, uh, you know, all the reasons, we don't have to go into them. But the point is, what will the Russian escalation to counter this be? And, yeah. and that is something that is well, we cannot uh, predict because we're yeah. in uncharted territory. We are, but let's try and examine what the different options uh, would be. We're coming up now to the uh, first anniversary of the Russian special military operation, an invasion, effectively, of uh, Russian forces into eastern Ukraine. We know the reasons the Russians have given for their doing so, but a year on, how looks the front to you? And where might we expect in your uh, opinion, as a civilian, but as someone living not far from where the front line currently is now, uh, what, what might we expect to mark the anniversary of uh, 25th February? Well, likely by the 24th, will have fallen. Now, this has been a major battle that has been going on off and on since August, but really it's, it's been becoming an issue over the last couple of months because the Zelensky regime has been trying to defend it at all costs. They have been pouring in men and weapons into Bakhmut, and the Russians have been just grinding away at all of these men and all of this equipment. And it is a catastrophic loss for the Zelensky regime, because not only have they put a lot of military effort behind uh, holding on to this uh, particular town, the, there's also the political dimension. And it will be a huge blow to the Zelensky regime when Bakhmut eventually falls. I mean, we, we already have uh, uh, signs that it's just imminent. And further issue is that as the Russian forces are encircling Bakhmut, they're going to wind up capturing thousands of troops because that, that's kind of like the military inevitability of the situation. And so one has to wonder what will the political ramifications be? Will the Zelensky regime still endure after this catastrophic loss? And it will certainly be an incredible blow to the morale of the Zelensky regime forces. And how will that play into Russian plans? Because at this time, the Russians have assembled an enormous army surrounding Ukraine uh, in the south of Belarus on the northern border of uh, Ukraine, on the eastern border here in Belgorod, and on the south of Ukraine in the, uh, in the territories that Russia has annexed or occupied as, as whatever you prefer to call it. And so uh, this 700,000 man force, what are the Russians planning to do with this force? Because you don't put together an army that size for no reason, just, just because, just to see what it looks like. No, they have a very clear plan of action insofar as all those men and all that equipment, because these 700,000 men, they are loaded for bear, forgive the pun. They have uh, tanks, artillery, aircraft, everything. They are ready for something enormous. Now, what that will be, nobody knows, because the Russians have been incredibly careful insofar as their operational security. So anybody who claims to know what the Russians are up to is just speculating wildly. Everybody is just waiting to see what the Russians will do. What is clear, though, is that with this uh, amping up of the, of the Russian army around Ukraine, in the steady grind that has been going on in the Donbass, the Russians have essentially upped the volume and, and the, uh, the uh, offensive effort across the entire front. It's not only Bakhmut, it's also Vuledar, 
It's, it's the entire front that they are ramping up and grinding ever faster and harder. And so the, the issue becomes clearly the Russians expect some sort of breakthrough. How will they take advantage of it? Will they do specifically? Nobody really knows, but we are clearly coming to a a point of culmination insofar as this uh, conflict is concerned. The next uh, uh, two weeks to two months, we are going to see rapid changes, and it could be that this might be the straw that breaks the camel's back. We will see, but clearly something very big is on the horizon, and it's the near of, of uh, very good military analysts on both sides. And most of them agree that something this month will be happening, something very big. But what is it exactly? Will the Russian army come from uh, the north of Ukraine, out of Belarus? Will they come out of the east from uh, Belgorod and, and cut around the city of Kharkov, where I'm currently located? Will they come all, all three or is there something else that they're planning? Nobody knows. But we, we are reaching a, a climactic moment, and it's happening now. Uh, what will the results be of this? How big of an effort is it going to be? How, how devastating will it be? Nobody knows, because depending on how devastating this uh, attack is, this offensive is, will determine whether the Zelensky regime remains in power or perhaps they flee or perhaps there's a change in government altogether in Kiev and they start negotiating with the Russians or perhaps there's a change of government and the new leaders in Kiev decide, no, we're going to fight to the bitter end. Nobody knows, but we are clearly reaching a climactic moment. And I think that your viewers should be aware of this, that uh, this conflict has been going on almost a year. On a mental level, it's exhausting. But right now, you have to pay attention because something very, very big is on the horizon. Finally, Gonzalo, and we'll let you go because you have other commitments. Um, I've always thought that one possible end to this is something that you just alluded to. Namely, that someone, most likely in the armed forces... Uh, will will decide that enough is enough, that Zelensky cannot possibly bring this war to an end uh, and that he will be removed. He'll be overthrown. There'll be some kind of military government will emerge that will negotiate with the Russians. I've always thought that to be, in a way, the most likely ending. I read today that there are increasing tensions between the chief of the army and uh, Zelensky. Can you provide any insight into that? Well, there have been a number of of officials who have been dismissed because of charges of corruption. Uh, The the Minister of the Interior was killed in a helicopter accident that was rather suspect insofar as timing is concerned. Not only was he killed, but his two top deputies were killed. And furthermore, four uh, Ministry of the Interior uh, officials Uh, resigned at the same time. This happened a couple of days ago. Uh, What does this mean internally insofar as Kiev politics? I could not tell you because nobody's really clear on it. What I can say is the following. The Russians have no intention of coming to any kind of agreement with Kiev. I think that they might make stabs at it, sort of like like a, a fig leaf that they're trying to negotiate. 
But I think that the Russians no longer believe either Kiev or the West insofar as any agreement is concerned. And my thinking at this time is that the Russians intend to capture the entire country because they believe that the West is, as they say, agreement incapable. And so they cannot trust the West in any kind of negotiations. A lot of people in the West right now are saying that maybe the conflict can be frozen and create some sort of demilitarized zone, like what happened in the Korean conflict. I personally do not believe that the Russians would uh, entertain that notion of some sort of ceasefire in a DMZ uh, area. Because uh, first of all, the Russian public is very much in favor of this conflict and they want to see it through to the very end. And number two, as I said, the West and the Kiev regime have shown themselves unwilling or unable to stick with any agreement. And the fact that uh, Francois Hollande, Angela Merkel, and, um, and uh, President Poroshenko, who were the three other parties to the Minsk II agreements, they have publicly come out and said that the Minsk II agreements were just to buy time for Ukraine to arm itself and prepare itself for a war with uh, Russia. Well, that just leads the Russians to conclude that any kind of ceasefire that does not end with Russia holding the entirety of Ukraine up until the Polish border is not going to be worth the paper it's printed on. So I think that that is the ultimate direction of travel insofar as this conflict is concerned. Uh, I would be extraordinarily surprised if this conflict land, lasts until the end of this year. I personally think that, that with this big offensive that will be occurring between now and uh, early mid-spring, which will be decisive one way or the other. I think that this conflict will end one way or the other by, um, by the summer. This is, of course, presupposing that NATO doesn't do something incredibly foolish and perhaps try to widen this conflict by using Poland as a proxy, because that seems to be what the Polish leadership would like. They would like to get into this conflict they have ancient hatreds of Russians of, for their own reasons, and they also have a greed for the lands of formerly the Galicia, which is the western part of Ukraine. So if this is just between NATO and Russia using Ukraine as a proxy, I think it will likely wind down by the summer. But if Poland positions itself as to the next proxy of NATO against Russia, then this conflict could go on for quite some more time. So we'll have to see. This is, nobody really knows what's going to happen, but clearly something big is about to happen. Gonzalo, thanks for joining us. Stay safe. We need you very, very much indeed. Thank you so uh, much. Now, our poll, the UFOs over North America are A, Chinese. 20% think they're Chinese uh, on my Twitter handle, but only 14% think so on YouTube. 14% think so on Telegram, but 20% think so on the YouTube community poll. Aliens have got a surprisingly strong showing. I think maybe on Wednesday we'll do an aliens show, we'll do a UFO show on Wednesday, because an amazing number of over 10,000 people so far actually think that aliens are amongst us, at least above us. On Twitter, 22% think it's aliens. On YouTube, 21%. On Telegram, 17%. And on YouTube, comms, 18%. But uh, most people think we'll never know. 
And I would have thought that that may be the uh, best answer. But it could be that the end times are upon us. Let me take a quick break. 60 seconds, count them. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Let's take some calls. Fran is in London on Russia. Go ahead, Fran. Hi, George. Good evening. Um, your comment there on end times, just want to say I was watching a documentary the other day on, uh, it was voiced by Stephen Fry two years ago on YouTube, the 1.2 trillion plan for the, um, to kill 90% of humanity about nuclear war. So worth a look, George. But anyway, my question to you is... Um, first well, of all, just thank before you, for you go on, Fran, Fran, just before you go on, you know, I would... In, even six weeks ago, uh, have thought that's an outlandish conspiracy theory to coin a phrase. But then you see this piece in the Yale, uh, Harvard's name today, where he's actually calling for mass suicide amongst elderly Japanese so that the country can recover from its demographic uh, time bomb, its demographic disaster. You're right, there are people out there that would welcome a mass bloodletting in the world as part of their, I don't know, great reset, their great plans for the future. It is, it makes your blood run cold, Fran. It's like a culling of populations, and I never used to believe all these conspiracy theories, but, you know, with COVID and everything, it's, you know, it seems to be, there seems to be some ulterior motive to uh, diminish the populations. So, George, what I would really like to get your take on is when Russia eventually do win this war, how do you think the Western media will uh, present the news? Because I'm truly beginning to think that the lies are so entrenched that they may not even report on it. Like, you know, we're, like, we're living in this Orwellian yeah. nightmare. So, um, yeah, I'd just like to get your take on that. What do you think, you know, what's yeah, going to happen? I mean, uh, they, won't be, they won't be, yeah, they won't be able to do that because Zelensky will presumably be strolling around in Kensington. Uh, or in Miami, where the weather's slightly better, uh, or in Tel Aviv, wherever it is that he relocates. And, of course, he's well provided for in all three places. Uh, they won't be able to pretend that the war hasn't been lost, but they won't accept the loss. I think, certainly for the rest of my life, uh, I hope not for all time, but certainly for the rest of my life, uh, a state of war will exist between Western countries and Russia. But the good news, Fran, and th that's bad news, but there is good news. The good news is more and more people in the world won't even notice. That's how irrelevant Western power is now galloping towards. It was inching, 
it was moving ineluctably towards this big shift in the uh, wealth and power in the world, but it is now galloping uh, towards uh, what will be, ironically, a new world order, just not the new world order our rulers had in mind. Fran, thanks for a great call. Rob is in Toronto. Let's hear from him. Rob, welcome. Well, thanks very much for taking my call. I've been a big fan of you for a good number of decades now. We really need votes in North America Thank here you. desperately. And Thank you. I just wanted to say that I answered, we'll never know to the online poll. And I'll tell you why. Uh, with respect to the various balloon-like activities going on uh, here in the far north of North America, be it in Yukon or Alaska, uh, be it air balloons versus these new cylindrical objects that they shot down. I want to get your thoughts on how this is, in my view, uh, more opportunity for the governments and media to start pushing for more Arctic militarization. I've been noticing a lot of media articles lately speaking to that effect, basically setting up the NATO-Russia boogeyman scenario uh, for the north as the battlefront. And we're going to see more battles of sovereignty in the north in the coming decades. And I can see this balloon gate uh, as being a situation whereby the West is using a legitimate incident in the Chinese weather balloon going off course and now twisting it uh, into justification to boost military presence. I mean, for all we know, these latest two balloons could be, you know, a couple kids up in Whitehorse or Anchorage, uh, launching them in their backyards. You know, it's, it's not hard to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, but all exactly. we're hearing is... Although is the grey cylinder... The yeah, the grey cylinder troubles me uh, a little bit, Rob. I don't know. You know more than me uh, about that part of the world. But um, if I was going to fight Russia anywhere, it wouldn't be amongst the snow and the ice in the Arctic. That sounds to me like a nightmare scenario. Uh, so uh, they would be very ill-advised uh, to begin warlike maneuvers in the Arctic. Uh, they would be very well advised to avoid uh, escalating this conflict any further, but they are fools as well as knaves. Uh, I don't know uh, whose balloons they are, or even if they are balloons. As I say, CNN, I saw a pilot interviewed, he said he was flying alongside a grey cylinder with no visible means of propulsion, and he could not work out how it could possibly remain in the air. It had no wings. It was the size of a small car. And as you'll have heard there from War of the Worlds, Orson Welles, uh, reading, or, uh, reading um, H. G. Wells's uh, masterpiece, uh, set off total panic in the United States when he started talking about a grey cylinder uh, that had landed mysteriously on the Earth. I'm not saying that they are aliens. Uh, I can't rule out that they are. Only a fool would uh, do that. Seems unlikely to me that in this uh, universe of trillions of planets and aeons of age that there has never been uh, any other civilization that has ever emerged and may have set off on a journey a very long time ago, which is only now reaching uh, Anchorage. But it's more likely to be a Super Bowl publicity stunt, 
I'll grant you. Rob, thanks for that wonderful call. Uh, Ilya is in Turkey uh, on the earthquake. Let's hear from her. Ilya, thank you very much for calling. First of all, the condolences of our entire audience for the phenomenal loss of life and damage and harm and hurt and the rivers of tears that must be running in Turkey now. Um, okay, first of all, thank you so much for doing the amazing work you do. Um, it's great to have such reliable resources uh, at such dire times. Um, and I wanted to share how uh, these, uh, although we are going through extremely difficult times um, in Turkey right now and Syria, um, the help that we have been receiving from the world has given me such hope. There are Israeli, Russian, uh, Iranian, uh, and Ukrainian rescue gr groups that are working alongside each other in the region, affected region right now. And I, I hope that um, this would be an exemplary situation. We need to stand in solidarity for each other as well. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I, it has been, uh, we, have, we have been having lots of difficult days. Uh, I'm experiencing difficulty talking a little bit. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful call uh, that will be greatly valued uh, by the audience and particularly the message of hope that it gives. It confirms uh, my innermost belief the one that I have carried all of my life and will to my death, that humanity, the best of humanity, is capable of the greatest of things. And that our problem is that we are ruled and governed and owned by the worst of us, by the worst among us. But the people who have gone to Turkey and Syria, the people in Turkey and Syria who with their bare hands before the rescuers and tools and machinery arrived were with their own fingernails trying to rescue strangers from the, uh, from the uh, rubble, under the rubble. People pictured holding the hands of dead children to comfort them as they died in this catastrophe is an indication to me, as you have just also indicated, that humanity is good, that there is a struggle between good and evil, and that we must ensure that good prevails. May God preserve you and help you in your hour of need, Ilya. Thank you for uh, calling the mother of all talk shows from earthquake-stricken Turkey. Now, my good wife, Gayatri, is a filmmaker of some note now, and she's embarked upon a series of small films on uh, four minutes. That's all they are. Don't go away. Four minutes. This one on hypocrisy. Take a look at it. It's January 2020 and China has imposed a lockdown following the outbreak of the new virus, COVID-19. The rest of the world is still asleep. Brutal, authoritarian, tyrannical, the Western media cry. 
Fast forward three years later, January 2023, China relaxes its lockdown, removing almost all social distancing requirements, making domestic and international travel far more convenient. Now the very same Western media denounce China again. There's a word for such fork-tongued fake news narratives, hypocrisy. But hypocrisy is the bread and butter of British and American media when it comes to China. Having caused the deaths of a million Muslims in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, they're shedding crocodile tears for Chinese Muslims whose human rights they continue to lie about, even in the teeth of evidence to the contrary. Who are you going to believe? Me? or the evidence of your own lying eyes. They spread baseless fears about TikTok, Huawei, as supposedly a backdoor for Chinese intelligence gathering. They've even accused your light bulbs and your refrigerator of spying on you. But thanks to Elon Musk and his Twitter files, we now know that it's American intelligence that's not just coming through your back door, but your front door and every one of your windows, spying on everything you read and write and censoring you if they don't like it. More double standards in Africa, where China is building partnerships and cooperation for development, as it has done for many decades. On the other hand, there's Western colonialism. Just look at one country in particular, Belgium, capital Brussels, nowadays the headquarters of NATO and the European Union. But until 1960, Brussels was the capital of colonialism in Africa. Let's just look at one country, the so-called Belgian Congo, what Joseph Conrad described as the heart of darkness. They've mutilated Africans for not meeting their rubber quotas, cutting off their hands, cutting off their penises. Belgian colonialism in just one African country killed 10 million Africans. They criticized China for building airports and highways. Seriously? China is building infrastructure in Africa. The West merely looted the continent. They also criticize China for building military bases, while they still sail their naval flotillas around Chinese waters. They've even dragooned Japan, imagine, into their anti-China lineup. From COVID to Congo, hypocrisy is the middle name of the West. Where, I remind you, just 13% of the people of the world live. It is an empire of lies. Its foundations are rotten. Its superstructure rickety. Its infrastructure crumbling away. As the Beatles might put it, it's so yesterday. The sun is rising in the east. And all the attempts made by the West, big, small, but mostly ridiculous, to paint China as a bogeyman, while the West itself is falling apart, frankly, You'd need a heart of stone not to laugh. Well done, Gayatri. That's the first outing of the first of her films. Uh, you can follow her outfit. It's called How So Then. Three words, How So Then. You can follow them on Twitter, across social media. That uh, particular film is on my YouTube channel. Right now, uh, you can circulate it 
uh, as widely as possible, if you liked it. I certainly did. Now, uh, we've heard from Turkey, from that young woman, Ilya. Uh, let's hear how the situation is in Syria, where Richard Medhurst, a great friend of the show, writer and broadcaster, political analyst, and the latest speaker announced at the No to NATO, No to War rally in central London on February 25th joins us. Now, Richard, thanks uh, for doing this. Uh, Hi, we George. can talk about Turkey uh, if we have time, but uh, the situation in Syria is really extremely dire because of the sanctions. What sanctions are these? Who put them on? And why should anyone obey them? Hi, George. Thanks for having me on. And, you know, the, 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 the simple truth is that these sanctions were put in place by the United States and the European Union. And this is towards 2019, 2020, when they realized that, you know, they, they, they can't win the war uh, against uh, Assad. They can't remove him or oust him uh, militarily. So they switched to a scorched earth policy. You know, let's let's burn all the wheat or at least make sure that Syrians uh, don't have access to their own wheat. Remember, I, I always remind people that Syria used to be a net exporter of wheat, so it, it's definitely not a supply issue, uh, um, you know, or, or uh, an issue of, of um, you know, lack of resources. Syria has the fuel. Syria has the wheat in the breadbasket region, but that's occupied by the Americans, right? They, they, there's one official, an American official, who famously said that the United States owns one third of Syria, and they do. And so, you know, they, they prevent people from having fuel and, and wheat. And then at the same time, uh, they make sure that they're that Syria is choked off and, and isolated from uh, the whole planet. And, and I mean, even during the earthquake right now, in the midst of this disaster, they, they refuse to lift the sanctions. And what they you know, what they do is they they say that, well, the sanctions have a humanitarian exemption. And they say this about all countries. Right. So the ones that have been targeted with this this Cuba, um, uh, uh, you know, imitation of a Cuban, a Cuban embargo. Uh, which is still still you know imposed on Cuba. They've done it to Venezuela. They've done it to Syria, and so they say there's an exemption for humanitarian uh, relief. And in reality, that's a lie. It's not true because the red tape, the bureaucracy, is so complicated. No one can has the time or the resources to even bother navigating it. So you know, in, in the end, people just don't want to touch uh, uh, anything to do with Venezuela or anything to do with Syria. And they say it's about hurting um, uh, the president, about hurting the Assad regime. It, it never actually affects the, the, the people in power. It only hurts regular civilians. It hurts uh, everyday Syrians. And um, they've issued some tiny exemption now. But it, again, it's, it's worthless. It's absolutely worthless. It's, Syrians can't do anything. Good, you know, good luck opening a PayPal account. Good luck sending money to people in Syria. It won't work. It doesn't work. And uh, these sanctions are evil. They, they kill people. That is what they're designed to do. And the Caesar Act sanctions is what they're called. You know, Trump put them in place and Biden keeps them in place because this is standard U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, I was going to make the PayPal point uh, myself. Uh, I tried to send money to Syria. It is impossible to do it. I have uh, friends, uh, former in-laws, relatives uh, in Syria. I tried to send, but you cannot do so. And in fact, you attract the attention of all kinds of unwelcome inquiries. Why are you trying to send money to Syria? Well, maybe because they've just had an earthquake. Uh, no one can do it, and many companies 
have already said, many countries also have already said, that they will not be going directly into Syria with aid. Uh, Italy is one exemption in Western uh, Europe, and I think that is commendable. Of course, uh, Syria's friends, Russia and Iran, and China and so on, are helping a great deal. But how much more uh, still needs to be done? My heart breaks for Aleppo in particular. It is a jewel of the Orient, it is a treasure. It's been an important place in my life. Uh, tell us what the situation is like in these stricken areas. Well, you know, George, as you just mentioned, Aleppo, they had to suffer uh, some of the worst destruction throughout the war. And then now on top of everything, while they're trying to rebuild, if, you know, if that's even possible under the sanctions, they get hit with the earthquake. I think it's, it's, it's so sad. Um, it, it's really, really heartbreaking, like you said. Um, and uh, just a side note on PayPal, I mean, it, it's not even about sending money to Syrians which is insulting enough that you, you can't do that in an earthquake. It's, even you or I, you know, we're outside of Syria, and if someone just writes the word Syria in one of the, their donations to us, it gets, it gets pulled aside by PayPal. Like as if, uh, you know, they, they think it, it must be something bad by default. And, and you know, this, this dystopian reality that you can't even say the name of a country without, as you said, inviting all sorts of weird inquiries is, is very dystopian. You know, right now in in Syria, the the areas that have been stricken, uh, uh, the, the that that have really suffered the worst of it. We're talking about the rebel-held areas, and you know, when I say rebel-held, of course, uh, we're talking about Idlib um, and the surrounding areas in Aleppo. And you know, in, in terms of Idlib, we've got Turkish-backed uh, um, rebels there. You have the Turkish army as well, and the only access for any humanitarian aid into Syria is through Turkey. And who engineered? Who had this brilliant idea? Well, it's it's us. It's, it's the United States and the European unions because we, you know, the idea was to isolate the uh, Assad regime that we keep hearing about. And so, it, you know, in the in their ingenuity, because of there's an earthquake, that road was physically destroyed. So for the three days after the earthquake, there were no aid trucks coming into Syria at all from this only crossing, all because they want to isolate Damascus. And and even despite that, you know, they, they don't think for a second, well, let's just let the aid go through Damascus, uh, let the government actually distribute it. No, no, no. It it, it would only go through um Bab al Hawa, which is the, the crossing, and and only uh from a NATO country and, and, and from Turkey. And so, you know, that it's it's really cruel. And I, I saw there's some some reports from today where the Syrian government has agreed to send aid to the rebel areas. Uh, um, and guess who's blocking it? It's uh, it's you know <laughs> our lovely friends uh, uh, HTS or you know better known as Al Qaeda. Very simply, they're the ones blocking it. They've told the UN that they're not going to accept any aid trucks from the Syrian government. I mean, I, I don't know what to call that. It, it's 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 beyond foolish. It's it's evil, and uh, they're clearly not taking care of their own. So we've got a situation where uh, Syria has a government. It's the recognized government. Uh, at the United Nations, it is secure in power. The princes and kings of the Gulf are uh, now coming and going back to Damascus, just like the old days. Right. I think the crown prince of, uh, of the UAE is there for the third time uh, this, uh, this weekend. Um, what's the point of maintaining rebel-held areas? What's the point of 
the United States occupying a third of somebody else's country. And why is nobody doing anything about it, even talking about it? Are you going to deal with any of that in your speech in London on the 25th? Oh, absolutely, George, always. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the hypocrisy because everybody suddenly, they, they know the words annexation and territorial integrity and sovereignty and uh, only when it comes to Ukraine, right? When it comes to Syria, Israel's occupying the Golan Heights uh, and, and a third of their drinking water comes from the Golan Heights from Syria. No one cares. Uh, you know, that annexation is okay. And the U.S. troops in, in um, uh, Hasake and Deir Ezzor in the, in, in the northeastern regions of Syria where all the oil and the wheat just, ha- just so happen to be, no one cares. Uh, you know, this is not addressed even during an earthquake. And you can just see uh, from, from the countries that you mentioned how uh, – you know, it, it's in, it's it's quite incredible that Syria has to rely on other sanctioned countries to send aid, uh, like Iran, like Russia, like Venezuela. The, the, these countries are taking from their own bread uh, and and giving it to to Syrians who are in need and to Turkey, right? So, I, I think I, I think that says a lot about them. It's very it's very commendable. Um, you know, there are also planes coming in from from the UAE, from Egypt, from Bangladesh, and and there are more and more countries that are stepping up to the plate, but. Uh, most European countries, they, they refuse to engage with Syria in any capacity. And uh, it shows you that they don't, it, it's not about uh, Bashar al-Assad, which is, again, it's not even their right in the first place, but it shows you that they are, they, they are attacking the entire Syrian people because they know exactly what they're doing. If you and I know what, what, what sanctions are doing, they, they definitely know what sanctions are doing because they're the ones orchestrating them. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think when it comes to, Iran and Russia and uh, Venezuela and all, all these sanctioned countries uh, helping Syria. There's no excuse then for richer countries, for more capable countries. And there's a waiver that they issued. The United States, the, the, the Treasury issued an exemption for for people to send aid uh, to Syria. Again, this is just a safe face because you know people have been calling them out bit by bit. But generally speaking. Uh, in the media, it's it's complete silence. I even saw, uh, I'm, I'm sure you saw this as well in the Washington Post, somebody was saying, don't lift sanctions on Syria, even d- you know, despite the, the earthquake, just keep them there. And and I uh, I, I think to my shock, it was a, a Syrian who wrote this, a Syrian American. I, I, I mean, how can you hate your, your own countrymen to that point? It's, it's really, uh, it, it's really something uh, that beggars belief. And, you know, I, I, I just want to say also when it comes to these rebel held areas, uh, if HTS, who, who claim to be the representatives of the Syrian people, they don't start taking care uh, of the actual Syrian people and letting in these supplies, I think they're going to have a problem on their hands because people are going to start to wake up and see that, uh, you know, they, they, it's just a sham, all of this uh, uh, so-called government that they've set up, where they don't even use Syrian money. They use Turkish money, by the way. So I, I really hope that um, people will wake up and lift the sanctions because Turkey is one of the countries that's kind of throwing relations with Syria uh, so hopefully that leads to more interaction with the government in Damascus and actually helping people inside Syria. Because the, even if ever, no one had been hurt in the earthquake, the sanctions are killing people and they're hurting people and it has to stop. Thank you, Richard Medjar. See you on the 25th somewhere in central London. Thank you. Uh, Patreon comments uh, tonight are uh, flooding in. Zlorf says, thank you for your splendid work, Mr. Galloway. I meant to become a patron for a while now. Just never had time to get round to it. However, hearing about the attacks on moats today and the threats to you really made me angry and finally motivated me to sign up. Whoever is behind these attacks must be punished and your voice must be heard as far and for as long as possible. 
Stay safe and keep up the good work. All the best to you and yours. Thank you, Zlorf. I'm almost speechless about that. Shlomo Orr says, Thank you, George, for your brutal honesty, for being a beacon of truth, morality, and humanity in a world that is becoming darker by the day. You are blessed, and we are blessed to have you alive and rumbling. How very, very kind. I'll rumble right up until the last. That I promise you. Now, uh, breaking, it's been reported, but not confirmed. Canada has closed the airspace over Lake Huron, Huron and declared a, quote, active air defense operation after reports of another object. Wow. Republican Congresswoman Elisa Slotkin has tweeted this in the last few moments. Just got a call from the Department of Defense. Our military has an extremely close eye on the object above Lake Huron. We'll know more about what this was in the coming days. But for now, be assured that all parties have been laser-focused on it from the moment it traversed our waters. Well, will we hear more? Why haven't we heard anything about the Chinese weather balloon that went off course and uh, was long ago fished out of the water and has been in the hands of the United States government? I presume that we've heard nothing because there's nothing to tell us that the balloon is exactly what the Chinese government was telling the U.S. government every single day of the original balloon. Now, nobody knows what these new phenomena are. Are they Sam Smith? Are they more uh, weather balloons? Are they uh, Super Bowl uh, promos? Are they uh, Pizza Hut uh, gags? Are they pranks? Or are they aliens? Nobody knows, but the question is, when will we know? It's Toby from Sandown. On you go, Toby. Hi, George. Um, a fan of your show, first time caller. Yeah, I'm calling about the uh, thank you about the air balloon that went over the United States. I don't even believe it was Chinese. <laughs> I I believe what it was. It was the United States. They were, of course, with the current tensions rising, they're just trying to look for an excuse to blame China for whatever reason they could do. Yeah, what's your well, thought on um, it, George? The first, the, well, Toby, the first balloon was from China because China was daily assuring the United States that it was exactly what it said on the tin. It was a weather balloon, the kind that every country sends up to, uh, to feel the trends of, uh, of uh, weather projection. It's part of every country's um, uh, weather meteorological uh, effort. They told the U.S. every single day exactly where it was and how the winds had taken it there and where the winds were likely to take it. That's why the Americans didn't shoot it down until the U.S. decided... Uh, to uh, make a casus belli with China by uh, hyping it up, calling it a danger, shooting it down, only for Joe Biden to say two days ago, on uh, three days ago, on Thursday, that that balloon did not represent any danger to the national security of the United States. 
which of course was not what the media had been encouraged to broadcast for every single hour of the preceding uh, few days. Whose balloons we're now talking about, who can tell? This Lake Huron uh, sounds quite uh, sinister, although it's quite helpful in the middle of one of the Great Lakes and you can shoot it down and never hear tell of it again if you get my drift. Norma, the legend, is in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Um, bear with me, because my health is deteriorating a bit, but I oh, did want to make two... sorry to hear that, dear. Oh, don't worry, I'm old. <laughs> um, and it's so awful what Richard Meadows said about Syria and, and the sanctions, but the oh, main yeah. thing I wanted to yeah. say was Colonel Richard Black. Now, he was very informative, really, and he did mm -hmm. help to set the you know, the record straight about the situation. And I thought to myself, well, what a pity that all those sycophants that they clapped Zelensky at Westminster Hall, they seem so ignorant of the fact. And our country is basically, is solely in support of him. And what we're doing, we're walking blind into a very serious situation. And, you know, I, I, I wish that... Richard Black could be on the mainstream media, although he was long-winded, you know, he was a bit long-winded, but um, and could just put that that forward, but we'd never hear it, do we? No, uh, imagine if he was speaking to the two houses of the British Parliament. Imagine if he got the time that I gave him to make the case that he made uh, on the BBC. Uh, on, uh, on mainstream television across Europe. Imagine if he was allowed to address the German parliament, the French National Assembly. But of course, they could never allow that because their whole war effort rests on the ignorance of the people. Now, you and I are both old enough to know, Norma, there's a lot of stupid people. And apart from the stupid ones, there's a lot of ignorant people, which is not the same as stupid. You could be uh, clever, but ignorant. You could be ignorant literally in the sense that you are unaware of all of these things that we regularly talk to each other about on this uh, show. But the people who are calling the shots, they know everything that we've been talking about here tonight in every detail and more. They know exactly what they are doing. There's none of this, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they are doing. They know what they are doing. I've lived through this movie before, Norma. I, as you know, was probably the foremost opponent uh, in Western countries of the sanctions on Iraq, which killed, killed a million Iraqis before the war even began. As you've heard me say, uh, killed them before they even were old enough to know that they were Iraqis, but killed for no other reason than that they were Iraqis. And I used to talk to these officials in the ministries and in the United Nations and explain to them, I could never get to the ministers, but the officials, I explained to them exactly what you're 
sanctions are doing. They are killing these children that would otherwise be able to be saved. And they looked at me with faces of stone. So they know, Norma, they are not ignorant. Still less are they stupid. They are wicked. They are evil. And evil prevails in our countries. And we have no choice. What choice do we have but to stand up against it, to try and persuade our fellow citizens about it? And we're making progress. Uh, There's no doubt about that. I mean, we literally could not sell another ticket for our no to NATO, no to war rally on the 25th. We can't in all conscience sell another one because thousands of people, thousands have bought tickets to come to that rally. As you heard at the beginning of the show tonight, last week, seven days, 979,000 people watch this show, this show. Add in Richard Medhurst and Jimmy Dore and uh, Max Blumenthal, The Grey Zone and all the many, many places like this, big and small. Add them all in. We are millions, millions, millions and we have to begin to make that tell. And we have to, in Washington, on the 19th, make that tell at the Lincoln Memorial. We have to, in central London on the 25th, make that tell. Because if we don't, the wicked and the evil will continue uh, to prevail. And I thought, at first, how are they going to live with the fact that the course they're on may very well lead to millions of people being killed in a nuclear war, maybe the extinction of humanity, including themselves, their children and their grandchildren, and their grandchildren yet unborn. How are they going to live with that? And then, when I read that Yale professor's plan, when I hear the Malthusians in Western countries, claiming that there's too many people in the world, when in fact all the people in the world could stand shoulder to shoulder on the Isle of Wight. You think I'm making that up? Do the maths. The problem in the world is not that there are too many people. The problem in Japan is not that there are too many old people, but there are too few young people. Because we have an economic system, and a government that prevails over that economic system in countries like Japan and in Britain that will not spend money to encourage people to have more children so that the older people can have somebody to wipe their nose and wipe their arse and look after them in hospital in their final days. That's the problem. We heard from uh, the young woman in Turkey, about the essential goodness of man and woman. That's true. Our lives are full of it. The old lady that cleans the priest's house, the uh, pass keeper, the uh, volunteers that run 
uh, our football teams all over the country, all over the world, the fireman that plunges into a burning building without negotiating a side deal with you on whether or not to rescue your painting or even your child. The heroes that we should read about more but don't all over the world, the people that are ready to give sacrifice their lives even. And in many cases, hundreds of hours of their time to make life better. The people that call on their elderly neighbor to see that they're okay, to go for the messages at the store for them because they cannot get out. The people that care about the people under the rubble in Turkey and Syria, 50 million in 36 hours from your compatriots and mine here in this country. Multiply that all over the world. The world is full of good people. The problem is it's run by the bad people. And that's what we have got to change. I wish I had more time to develop these points, but I don't. But the good news is I will be back here, God willing, on Wednesday at the slightly later time of 9 p.m. UK time for the midweek edition of the Mother of All Talk Shows. So if you've tuned in tonight for the first time, please don't make it the last time. And please tell others about the show that you found here tonight on the Mother of All Talk Shows. Please give generously on the Super Chat after the show is over and on our website, moats.tv. God willing, I'll see you all on Wednesday. Have a peaceful night.